Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. And just before we begin the show, I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. I am so excited to announce that today on the show we have Avital Chija Goldschmidt, the life and features editor at The Forward. She teaches journalism at YU, and she is a Rebbitzin at the Parkey Synagogue in New York City. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. Did I encompass everything you do? I think so, and I'm a mom, so that, 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 that also plays into it. Of course. How can we forget that? I was looking you up on Twitter, and I saw mom was like the last thing, and I was just yeah. thinking <laughs> how, what kind of world we live in now that mom is huge, but it's the last thing on our list because of how the values are, I guess. Or, you know, I actually have thought about this through, um, you know, where do I put mother, where do I put wife in my bio, as if it's so meaningful. Um, but the truth is, I, I feel like people are not following me on, definitely not on Twitter, um, for my motherhood musings, you know, so that's why I don't put it at the front. Yeah, the people on Twitter are not checking you out for your mom advice or how to make dinner. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. I do tweet occasionally about what it's like to be a working mom, a Jewish mother, etc. But it's not definitely not the bulk of my commentary. Right. Okay. So let's just give a little background to those listeners who have never heard of you before. You grew up in Highland Park, New Jersey, and you went to Berea mm-hmm. High School, and then Stern of Yeshiva University. And uh, just give us a little background on how you got into writing and uh, where did this ambition come from? So I was always a writer um, ever since I can remember. I still have my notebooks from when I was seven um, where I wrote my first what I thought was a novel. Um, I always wanted to write stories. I think I I wrote poetry at some point. Um, So, yeah, it was it was. It was just something that I was kind of known for in my the school that I went to. I was the writer. Um, I won a few like little competitions in middle school um, in Berea. I was yearbook editor, and I think I edited some of the student newspapers. And um, you know, I was constantly writing, constantly publishing. I won a few um, national competitions in high school as well. Um, these were actually in fiction writing. So it was, it was really lifelong. I don't remember ever being anything but a writer, um, in my heart. You just knew you were going to college. I think you did early admissions and you just decided you're going into journalism and you're going to study this professionally. Uh, pretty, pretty quickly. I was actually, I started as a polytime major. I was very passionate uh, about Israel. I thought I wanted to kind of, I guess, go into Israel advocacy of some sort. Uh, very quickly, though I loved my poli-sci professors and the subjects and the readings, um, I found I, I got pretty bored by the conversations in the class. I felt they were often, they were very um, 
circular, they weren't necessarily substantive, you know, they're poli there's like a certain stereotype around it. Um, so I quickly switched to English and journalism. And now you teach journalism at YU, so you sort of went full cycle, which is very cool. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Um, it's, it was, especially in the beginning when I came back to teach, it was, uh, I got a kick out of it because it just threw me back to my stern years and the things that I was worried about walking in those very hallways, what seemed like a few minutes ago, but was some years ago. Um, it's, it's fun to be back. It's great to be constantly engaging with the next generation of young Jewish women, uh, hearing what's on their minds, hearing what's going on on campus and beyond. What are the questions they're grappling with that are the same as when I was in college? And what are the questions that are totally different? It's very interesting. After you graduated Stern, you started writing freelance for uh, different publications, including Haredi and secular mainstream media. So Mm -hmm. can you story tell this transition process? And as an aspiring writer, what did that process look like? Actually, everything that I published uh, in those years, everything was through cold pitches. I reached out to editors. I did my research and reached out to editors on a limb, basically saying, hey, would you be interested in this? Um, I definitely had no connections in any publication. Um, It first started with uh, my kind of first major uh, piece was in Tablet. I wrote about... um, it was a piece called Tight Squeeze. I wrote about Sneas, how we're not teaching it correctly. We've, it has become a sort of humra competition where everyone tries to outdo one another um, with stringencies and how that's problematic. And it's actually antithetical to the original Pasuk in Micha, which talks about Neila Hatima King. Um, so that was that was a uh, that piece went viral. Um, I was 20 years old at the time, and that was kind of like woke me up to the fact that one could have influence on a communal conversation. Um, and I received so many letters from various readers from all over the world saying that they really connected to what I said and they really feel this way and it's very difficult for them. And I felt like, okay, there's something I can do here. I can, there's something I can contribute. So I never imagined that I would ever write about anything like from kite, from world issues. That was never my kind of crusade. But at a certain point, I just felt very strongly about it and decided to write about it. Um, So that was how it started. And then, yeah, and then after that, I just kind of kept pitching um, to various publications, Um, you know, all the Jewish publications, basically. So how does that look? You think of a topic, you write something up, and then you pitch the same story to a bunch of places or because they require exclusivity most of the time? Yeah, um, they're definitely exclusivity. Um, None of these pieces are reprinted anywhere. Um, But yeah, you write something up and you, um, I usually attach it to an email that that describes concisely what I'm interested in saying. Um, And you wait to hear back from an editor which can be nerve-wracking, um, though I tend to pretend I, I I tend to try to forget that I even sent the email and not wait on it. Um, yeah, and then you know they either accept or reject, and if they reject, you move on. 
and you would pitch somewhere else. So you really had to, you couldn't just send that template email to a bunch of places at the same time, saving yourself time. You really had to gruel oh, one, here. One could, but it's not really considered um, the polite thing to do. Usually you want to kind of give courtesy to an editor and give it to them the time um, to read it and respond. But I, I, generally, I actually advise writers to put in a deadline by which they would like to hear from an editor. So if I haven't heard back from you within a week, I will assume you're not interested. Something of that sort that kind of gives an editor a free pass to not have to respond if they're too busy. And then you can move on and pitch elsewhere. I actually love that. And yeah. now that you're an editor, we'll skip forward a little bit. Um, are there certain things you see differently now? And... For example, when you felt like you were unfairly declined or rejected, do you have a better understanding now that you're sitting on the other side? I think so. I think, um, well, the internet has changed a lot since I started and media has changed. Jewish media has changed. Um, but I, I do understand what I think a little bit more what editors are looking for, um, you know, and, and namely some they're looking for ideas that are extremely kind of reactive to whatever is going on in the news. Um, so it doesn't need to be directly reacting to an event, but an issue that is being discussed. It really has to be a hot topic. If it's not a hot topic, you know, there's no real reason or need to run it. Um, so I think, you know, there are very few stories these days that are truly evergreen. Everything is kind of somehow tied to, the news cycle, which is something that I never, I didn't really fully understand always. Um, but now I see it differently because those are the, you know, essays that kind of respond to uh, a controversial topic that is, that is, you know, trending, let's say on Twitter or thing. Those are the stories that I kind of light up when I see those are the ones that I'm interested in. Um, so of course there is room for the occasional kind of evergreen piece on something that is, not talked about perhaps or counterintuitive whatever but usually you know editors are looking for something that's very current totally you built your career on writing about hot topics breaking stereotypes and talking about certain more taboo issues but maybe even pointing them out you have published for more conservative jewish publications yes. and I'd like to know what that relationship is and are you treated differently by you being very chameleon-like and able to mm -hmm. speak the language of all types of Jewish walks, saying that you are the editor at The Forward, which is very left-wing, and then you are mm -hmm. published in Haaretz, which I guess is also left-wing. You have the exposure in the more orthodox community. How would yeah. you say, how do you juggle that and does that reflect does that make your observance question your spirituality on a daily basis because you fluctuate? Good question. I never thought about it um, in that way. Um, so, you know, I've published in, yeah, certainly more conservative publications. Um, Mishpacha ran a very long letter to the editor recently of mine. Um, Hamodia, I did a big magazine story for them a bit ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in close touch with, a lot of kind of more orthodox media um but you know having said that i'm definitely 
staunchly rooted in um, liberal, progressive, non-Orthodox media. Um, that's for several reasons. Um, but, you know, and largely because I really feel passionately about this women's pictures issue. Um, and secondly, and more, more importantly, I would argue, um, though the two are related, I struggle with the concept of censorship that is very normal um, in the more firm media. So, um, that is, that is the kind of, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, I think being a chameleon for me is not, doesn't really bother me. Um, it actually, I want, I'm choosing this way of life, though it kind of seems strange and untenable to other people, but I think, um, it's the only way to really live. I think I would be, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I am a Torah observant Jew. So this is, you know, my community, this is my, my, my path. This is where my family is. Um, but at the same time, I, I strongly believe in being engaged with the modern world. So this is kind of like, you know, my career choices and my publication choices are the manifestation of that ideology. Um, I think there aren't enough people uh, walking, you know, who are bridging those two worlds. And that um, is a problem, right? And there, there are a lot of issues in the community that arise because of that, because we are too insular. Um, so, but I, in terms of treatment, in terms of relationships, I have never faced um, overt, I think, uh, disrespect in any way. I've, I've only had positive interactions for the most part um, with, with media professionals on both sides, both secular and orthodox. Um, I think if you really believe in what you're doing and you show that you are committed to, to MS, to Torah, to the things that matter, um, even if it's uncomfortable, even if sometimes that MS is not what people want to see, you know, I think people will respect you at the end of the day. That's very true. And I love hearing how you are creating a new path for yourself in terms of trying to have access and influence in so many different communities and that being your ideal way of living. And I want to transition into being a journalist and a rabbi's wife sort of created you into a new space, into a new title where you are a religious role model, not just a journalist. Does that help your career or does it hurt it? And I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but I'd like you to talk about those aspects. Yeah, so it definitely, it definitely hurts sometimes. Um, you know, I'm sometimes, many times I'm limited. I can't write about something um, because there's some connection to the community. Um, it's a potential conflict of interest. So that is, can get complicated. Um, but, and, and that happens pretty often, by the way, especially because my husband is in a very um, kind of high profile synagogue. We have a lot of members that are um, involved in the highest echelons of politics and business, et cetera. Um, so, so there is that. Uh, I am kind of, I'm pretty optimistic though about my combination, though it also feels a little bit untenable at times um, in that I strongly believe that part of what people are looking for, what I think girls and women are looking for in communities um, 
is sorts of models of what it could be to be an Orthodox Jewish woman, an observant woman committed to tradition, but, you know, very much involved and um, visible in the larger world. So, you know, I think for people to see me trying this way, though it is not easy, um, I think it means a lot to them. So I, now I'm, I don't look at myself as like some great role model, but I, but I, but I think just for people to see me trying this, me trying to do both, um, trying to walk this walk, it can be positive. You did participate and speak in the OU summit this past week, right? Yesterday, actually. Yesterday. But you built a name for yourself. You are one of the very few women who are brought in, let's say from women made it. So usually the highest point of that is they have a speaking platform for women. Now right. you've done something and there are a few women alongside. I'm not saying you're the only one, but you're standing mm-hmm. there in front of the OU Summit. Just tell us a little bit about what you spoke about and what was it like? Sure. Well, actually, there were two separate um, speaking engagements this week. One Monday, I was at the RCA convention having a conversation on stage with Alan Fagan, the CEO of the OU. Um, and yesterday I was at the OU Women's Summit, which was women only, um, where I gave a talk about, quote unquote, the power of the pen. Um, I told my story, the tensions of journalism and religion, and um, actually went through what the pitching process is like when one writes an op-ed or an essay. Um, and and that for me is extremely important because uh, I, I really want to encourage other Orthodox women to raise their pens, to write about the issues they care about, the issues that I know they're passionate about and that they're knowledgeable about, that they have expertise in. Um, there's a dearth of Orthodox female thought leadership, unfortunately, especially in Orthodox media. Um, and I would love to encourage more women to do so. So that was, that was the gist of, of the two talks. Um, it was, it was great. I mean, it's funny always for me because, you know, as this chameleon thing that I'm doing, um, you know, I've, I've criticized the RCA and the OU previously, um, in my writing, um, on their political stances or lack thereof, actually. Um, But, you know, I think this is a great example of something that is called civil disagreement, which we don't really have um, a lot of that, right? If someone is not exactly 100% aligned with your views, that person is verboten, they're beyond the pale. Um, I often get this from people, readers who walk up to me and say, I read your work. I don't agree with everything you write, but I like sometimes what you say. And it's kind of funny to me because I don't need, I don't think anyone agrees with me a hundred percent. My own husband definitely doesn't agree with me a hundred percent. That's part of called, that's the part of the reading process. That's called critical reading. You will never agree with any writer 100%. Um, But there is this kind of mentality and it's not just in the Jewish community. It's definitely in the wider community where if you, you know, if you like one thing that someone, if you agree with one thing that someone writes, then you must sort of marry them, marry older ideas, older opinions. Um, so I thought this was a great example of, 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 again, of civil disagreement, of discourse where, you know, organizations with which I, I do disagree on some issues um, and some stances they have made, yet they're still, they can, you know, give me a platform. I was appreciative of that. That meant a lot to me. Off your hand, what are your hot topics, your pressing issues that you are passionate about? And I'm sure they, they're ever evolving, but what are they now? 
That's a good question. Um, (laughs) Some things are, uh, oh God. Okay, where to begin? Um, I mean, there are probably going to be very, this is going to sound like a cliched laundry list, but I think there's a reason why it's already considered a cliche because there are truly big problems that everyone kind of sees. Um, You know, I'm concerned about all the hot tickets in the Orthodox community. Um, Number one, the role of women, um, visibility, invisibility, um, leadership opportunities. And by that, I mean real leadership opportunities, not token ones where women are sitting at the table having actual influence on communities. I continue to be shocked by how many nonprofit boards professional leadership, how in the Orthodox community are totally, um, are, are entirely made up of men. And, in you know, someone who lives, you know, partly in the secular world, it's, it's a shocking thing to see because it is, this is something that is unacceptable, um, in the wider, uh, world. So that, that's number one. Um, and there I include, um, religious women's leadership. That's something that I'm very passionate about and very concerned about. I see a huge need. Um, Give me an example of what religious uh, women leadership looks like. Religious women's leadership looks like women who are trained and paid for doing work in their communities, educating their communities, doing pastoral work, um, you know, stepping into into a role that I believe is truly needed, Um, you know, Traditionally, historically, this was the role of the Rebbitzin, but not every Rebbitzin wants to be that role. Not every Rebbitzin can afford to play that role. Um, I certainly am struggling to do that on top of a full-time job and motherhood. Um, so that, that that's a really big issue. And and I I do believe that this that the women's issue is going to be there will be a sort of watershed moment of, over it. Um, in the from community, I don't know what that will be, but but I think it it is um it it threatens to turn off our generation. Um, so that's number one, and you know other things. I suppose abuse, how that is handled in the community, that is extremely upsetting to see. Um, you know, and the, and then and they're all related. All of these things, I think, they're all related to a general kind of fear of individualism. Uh, lack of freedom of speech, lack of free discourse in our own publications, right? I am an Orthodox woman, and I have to go out to Haaretz and to, then to the forward in order to have a real voice. I find that very upsetting. I agree with you. And things are changing because people have access to the internet and they are getting the information yes. they can if they want to. Yes, yes. So what are some of the projects you're working on now? I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it, but and what are some of the conflicts of interest that you're working on? And are there any like lines you have to cross that you didn't want to originally? But because you, you know, rock the name journalist and the reporting that comes with that, are there certain lines you have to cross that you're not so excited about? Um. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, I can't really talk about more recent cases um, because they're just ongoing stories. Um, but I can share that, you know, pieces I've done in the past year, let's say, 
uh, were definitely complicated for me. Um, I wrote an essay on attitudes towards immigrants in the Orthodox community about a year ago um, and how ironic it is that, um, you know, officially we, we are hawkish on, uh, on immigration, but at the same time, our entire labor force, you know, within our homes and our communities uh, relies on undocumented workers. So I, I spoke about that hypocrisy. Um, that was an extremely painful piece for me to publish because it certainly uh, went against, you know, it really criticized people very close to me, people in my community, um, you know, not directly, but, but their views on these things. Um, that was extremely painful to publish and I, I lost a lot of sleep over it, but I really felt it was important and it was true. So I did it anyways. Um, more recently, I had a big story on abortion in the Orthodox community. Another very hot topic, obviously, and something that pe many people close to me also feel very strongly about. They call themselves pro-life. Um, so how what happens when I then pick up a mirror and show them that actually, no, people even in the most religious communities are choosing to have abortions in various situations, that was very uncomfortable. So it's a constant um, negotiation for me. I totally feel you. <laughs> but you're yeah. building a brand and you're someone people want to have speak at their events or communities create events just to have you come speak. And I'd like to just focus a little bit more on the theme we have in the show we like to talk about with our guests. I know you manage a full-time job in addition to being a rabbits and a mom, but you're also building your personal brand and you go out on these speaking engagements and you are negotiating for your value, your time. Share a little yeah. bit with us what that process looks like, what you've learned and what your advice would be for anyone trying to build a career like yours you mean like a public name like someone who's speaking exactly um yes yeah, so a few things I think number one in terms of negotiating and kind of brokering these things um it's extremely important that you feel that you're valued for your time um and that actually the thing that has taught me that is has is really motherhood um since I've become a mother my time became exponentially more valuable to me. Um, you know, that means that an article, an essay that may have taken me a whole day to write previously, I could now like scribble away in two hours um, because I just recognize the value of every hour, that precious babysitting money. <laughs> um, so that, so, and it, but it has also taught me to, to really think twice about every single invitation. I turned down many invitations because uh, I just can't afford that time away from my family always. Um, and that, you know, obviously it's a very personal um, decision and everyone has their own factors to take into account, but um, just value your time. Um, you know, really ask yourself, what is the value of, of this, of, of this specific platform um, and of the time away from my family, of the time away from other sorts of professional advancement. And the time away from self-care, honestly, which is important. And I'm only learning about the importance of it now. Um, and then secondly, I think the most important thing, if one wants to go this route, is to constantly ask yourself, 
what chiddush are you bringing to the table? What new ideas, what new insights are you able to bring to the table that only you can bring? Um, and I say this regarding articles as well, when one is writing something, right? What are you, what new thing are you saying? Um, so that, that's a constant question that I ask myself. Um, you know, if, what, what new, um, what, what, how can I open people's minds up a little bit more, perhaps? Uh, what do they, what will inspire them? What will enlighten them? Those are things that I'm constantly thinking about. Uh, and I think everyone should, right? Because, you know, you can't just, it's, it's, you know, it's like a rabbi giving a drasha. You can't just give a regular Dvar Torah. You really, you have to think deeply about um, what new information, what new experiences can you share with your audience? I agree with that a lot. And you you sound like you just discovered self-care and the necessity of it. And and it's not a luxury that stay-at-home moms have, no. but it's something that you have to make time for. Yes. Yeah. About I mean, that. the cliches are all true about it. Um, I'm still learning. Uh, I think also living in Manhattan – there's a certain pace of life that you kind of get adjusted to, which isn't really normal. Um, and it's definitely not healthy. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to wean myself off, you know, and going back to this, you know, valuation of time, you know, really think twice about every single engagement, every time I'm, you know, invited to join a board or something, you know, do I really have the time? Do I really have the commitment? Do I even have the bandwidth to be in another WhatsApp group, right? Like those are things that I'm thinking about, um, trying to kind of lessen the noise that is unnecessary because that noise is the, like, can be terrible for the creative soul. You know, you need silence to an extent. Um, and that's something I'm kind of coming to realize now um, and thinking about how to cut back a little bit Okay, so how do you see yeah. your life, like if you had a 10-year plan, and this is actually a question from the audience, um, how, how do you see yourself transitioning? So I know you, there are many things you're doing now because you're hoping one of them kicks off or they're all a part of something big, but in an ideal world where you have everything you want, what would that look like? What's your, let's say, 10-year plan or more? That's a very question. Um... I think there are two things. I want to be writing regularly. I mean, you know, more or less as I do now. Um, I suppose in a in a column, but in a way that would also allow me to do reporting when I need to. Um, and then, and then the other thing that would be the new piece would be I really want to focus more on book writing. Uh, that's that's the goal, dream for the next. Hopefully sooner than ten years, but yeah, and that's the dream. Could you say who would you want to ideally be writing for, and what would your book be about? Um, you know, Orthodox Judaism in the modern world, as broad as that is. Um, I, I think we the representations of Orthodox Judaism in um, both in media and and also in literature are very skewed and I don't say that as a publicist I, I'm very ready to criticize when necessary um, but I, I think there's there's a lot more room for nuance and for accurate portraits and those accurate portraits can only come from those within the community not those outside the community and not those who have left the community 
Um, they're entitled to their experiences. They're entitled to telling the stories they have. But if you want a sort of fresh um, and I think incisive view on the community, it really must come from deeply within. And has your opinion changed since you have started with the forward? I know you came from the OU and you spoke a bit about what the Jewish Orthodox world is doing in terms of women's roles and women leadership. Have any of your opinions shifted uh, over the last few years with what's been going on? Um, not really. I think I've I've been being here, um, being the sort of like token Orthodox Jew here um, has taught me to be extremely judicious about every single question. Like, what do I believe in? No, no, no. What do I truly believe in? Um, and that, and that has been a really good exercise for me, I think. And that's something that we don't do often enough. I think in the firm community, we just assume that we have certain values or certain ideals because that's just what's fed to us through whatever vehicles um, we subscribe to. But now I'm, you know, here I've, I've really had to think through um, and sometimes take an unpredictable approach, right? Sometimes I will, you know, write, write about how, you know, how terribly undemocratic or mafioso-like some aspects of our community are. And sometimes I will write a piece which I, in which I will defend traditionalism virulently. Um, that has, you know, kind of, that's really emerged from being here. So you feel like you have the space to go both ways and... I guess what I wanted to know is, okay, I can't get political, so I'll just forget that. <laughs> no, I, 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 was, I was extremely depressed about Trump being elected in 2016, way before I came to the forward. So um, if that's your question. No, so my, my question was... not changed on that front. So, no, so my question was, I have heard people say that um, the left is going to become more anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. which they have. And there's a lot more of that going on. Has that pushed you more to the right? Um, I, no, I would not say that. I, you know, I hate to sound cliche, but there really is an issue on both sides. Um, and it has pushed me to think about how can I talk about Israel more as a very proud Zionist. Um, and that I am actually, I will be speaking about that very issue next week in Washington, D.C., or in two weeks from now, um, at the AJC conference. Um, so, but that, and that is new for me. I have never touched this before. I never felt, um, qualified. Uh, and that might be part of, like, my women's imposter syndrome. But that, that has, um, so that, that, that's new for me. And that is definitely... Um, in response to some of the rhetoric that I am seeing on the left. Um, I don't think there are enough proud Zionists associated with more liberal streams of Judaism or more liberal streams of Jewish communal politics, I'll say, that are speaking up um, about Israel and defense of Israel. So that, so in that way, that has, that has changed for me. Um, but in terms of I definitely do not see myself moving right in terms of American politics. I think American pol- the right's views on, I have, you know, my, my pet views and they, <laughs> and I've written plenty about them, whether it is on abortion, um, on immigration, on, on education, all of these issues 
really trouble me and do not feel um, aligned with pillar views as I interpret them. So I don't see myself moving right. I see myself continuing in my very strange, um, as you said, chameleon-like way <laughs> of, of trying to be judicious and not going along with whatever political party or stream is comfortable. Give me a few examples of people you follow or journalists um, or women leaders in the Orthodox communities, Some, somebody you would give a shout out to that are doing the work that you're set out to do as well. Like, who are some of the women who are in your boat right now? Oh, gosh. I think we're all doing very different, small, taking small pieces of the work that needs to be done and doing them in our own ways. Um, so it's hard to say, I, I, you know, just like you can never agree 100% with what one person is writing. Um, you know, I can never say, I cannot say that there's one specific woman who I think, ah, she is doing everything, um, you know, the way I think it should be done. Um, because every person has their talents and their skills and their, um, unique positioning that they can leverage. So, um, but I mean, you know, I would definitely points to women like Judge Ruffy Fryer, whom I've interviewed on several occasions on stage. Um, I think she's wonderful. She is truly uh, paving an unconventional path for herself. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, and I'm saying this as someone who knows her from behind the scenes, having had many conversations with her one-on-one, -on -one, I see that she is she is very brave, very, very brave for what she is doing in the community. Um, similarly, and, and also so on a different note, but Sivan Rahab Meir in Israel, another female Orthodox journalist um, who's also building a brand as this Torah educator. Um, I think she's doing something also incredibly interesting. She has uh, built a huge following of people interested in learning Jewish ideas, Jewish texts. And she she's really, you know, created this new sort of, I think, model for women's religious leadership. Uh, you know, there are so many rabbis I know who love her work, who listen to her, who get ideas from her. Um, that is that is very new. Um, and, you know, and both her and Judge Fryer have done interesting things and in that they have built their name. They have had to leave the Orthodox community in a way and build their names outside. They have had to climb the ladder outside the community and then come back in. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, the way our system is currently set up, that is really the only way to do that is, is to, to have some sort of influence, to have some sort of power within the community. One has to go kind of in this roundabout way. That's so interesting. I love how you articulated it very well. I never thought of it like that. Like you gain power in the secular world where women can gain power by merit exactly. and hard work, and then they come in and use that power in the Jewish world exactly. with their credibility. I'm sure you've had many stories. I'm sure people reach out to you all the time, and you have to deal with feedback, appropriate, inappropriate, something that makes you feel amazing, some things are terrible. If you could share just one or a few stories, more, I'm more interested in a story where uh, you've been shunned or rejected by more either uh, liberal or more conservative Jewish communities. But I'd like to hear some of the feedback that you've gotten 
And I just want to articulate it and I want to have you talk about it because anyone listening out there either assumes or just forgets that that's something you have to deal with as a side effect of the work you do. I'd like to showcase it. Um, yeah, I get a lot of hate. Um, a lot of, you know, I think more in the beginning, honestly, um, people were, didn't know who I was, you know, what's her agenda, you know, she's not going to stay from that type of thing. Um, you know, and I was this single woman coming from a Balachua family with no name recognition or anything. So who was she to speak? Uh, I got a lot of that. Um, I had many, I have, I mean, I still have this to this day. I have many front men writing to me, you know, that I explain, mansplaining to me basically how I'm wrong and what I think. Um, and they know better, pretty normal. Um, so that's, that's my, it's, that's kind of been my life since I first started writing a lot, publishing. Um, but I got used to it in the beginning. It was very difficult in the beginning. It totally killed whatever self-esteem I had. Um, I went through bouts of just not being able to eat because I was so anxious about, about this, um, about my reputation. Um, you know, will I ever get married? That was something that was constantly dangled over my head. You'll never get married because you're writing. Um, and that, you know, and then I built, you know, I'm built a, a thick skin as Eleanor Roosevelt says, any woman in public position must have the skin of a rhinoceros, something on that, along those lines. Um, and I think I've built a thick enough skin to not care as much anymore, um, to know that that's part of it. And to also understand that, um, that's part of, that's how, you know, you're doing something and hopefully you're doing something right. Um, you know, it's, if I was writing part of publicity content for our community, you know, that's, everyone would applaud, but that's, that's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm here in the pursuit of truth and justice. Um, and I think, you know, there's this, the best source for this is, is this, this question that arises on the Megillah when it describes Mordechai, Ratsui Lavrov Echav, in the very end. And he's, you know, loved by most of his brothers. Um, why most? Why most of his brethren? Why not everyone? Because a true leader is not is never going to be loved by everyone. Is never going to be, um, you know, accepted by everyone. There will always be people who will push back. That's the reality of being a leader today. Wow. And thanks for being a little vulnerable with us and sharing that. I'm embracing vulnerability recently. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> where you got this idea from. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. I feel like there's so much information here and your work is really multifaceted and you're working on so many different fronts and you're representing so many different issues and at the same time it's just one thing also and you're one person. But um you're you're fighting a fight and it's an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much, Avital, for coming on the show and sharing the struggles. Thank you and so the, much for having me. Yeah, and the ins and outs of your life. It's been so interesting and so fun talking to I you. I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. And um, keep us updated on your stories. Really, I love your work. I love reading what you do. And I know many people who are very respected in the Jewish communities all across different communities 
whether they like your opinions or not, they value it because they look for it, they read it, they want to know your eye and how you observe what's going on. So you definitely provide a lot of value, whether people want to admit it or not. And I want to thank yeah. you for your thank hard work. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to write a review and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out as well. See you next time.